You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Our Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Uh, today, another amazing interview with a celebrated author all the way down here in my neck of the woods over in Australia, why I sit here in New Zealand. But I want to welcome Dr. Danielle Claude, who's an associate professor at Flinders University. Amazing author. Today, we're going to talk all about koalas. But Danielle, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, yes. I've been itching to get to you. Anybody that's been listening to the podcast lately knows I was in Australia for a few weeks and I, I keep talking about it and all the wildlife I got to see and reading your book. So we're, we're going to talk about Daniel's latest book, Koalas, A Natural History in an Uncertain Future is a, a thorough, thorough text on it. And it, 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 it's, I wouldn't say it's not a textbook. It's a, it's, it's a beautifully written story about koalas but daniel after i read this i wanted to get back to australia so bad <laughs> so thank you thank you for sharing the story uh before we get going can you, i always like to ask my guests just you know your background growing up in australia and in part of your story you talk about or in, in your biography you talk about living on a pirate ship for a while so you gotta explain that because I, I thought that was quite interesting but just your general background. What was life like growing up in Australia? And, and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. That's a that's a good starting point. Um, I did have a pretty unusual childhood. So I grew up in Fort Lincoln, which is, um, you know, over on the, the west coast of South Australia. So I'm one of the peninsulas. So right out in, in the middle of nowhere, really. Um, and my dad's a boat builder. So he really loves boats. So you build a boat and then we lived on it. So hence the pirate ship. That's awesome. So I think, yeah. So I spent a lot of my time in like wilderness areas, I guess. Um, traveling, we traveled around the east, the south and east coast of Australia for several years, most mostly during you know my late primary, early high school years. Um, traveling around and you know stopping at, at remote locations and and cities and stuff as well. But I guess. I guess, you know, you're very exposed to nature when you live on a boat. You're very exposed to the environment. Um, and I think that has given me a particular uh, way of thinking about nature and wanting to know more about it. So, yeah, I, I guess that kind of started off my, my love of, of finding out more about nature. Another thing that happened when I was a child was that I did my schooling by correspondence. And one of the teachers said, you know, look, you've got a set curriculum here, but if you want to do a project on the place you're visiting, do a project on that because it's much more interesting. So that meant that everywhere we went, we started by um, doing, I, I set out to do a project on the places I went to. And one of the places I went to was 
a, a little museum in Eden on the south coast of New South Wales, which is famous for its killer whales. And the story of the killer whales and how they used to cooperate with the whale hunters that lived uh, in, in Eden and hunted humpback whales and other baleen whales was a school project I did. And that actually became my first book. Oh, wow. And so that's kind of the connection between my childhood experiences, I guess, and, and my writing. But um, yeah, in between, I also did study, um, I first studied psychology and animal behavior and then moved into zoology. I wanted to and ask then, that. It was, it was interesting reading your biography that, and again, we, we have a lot of young listeners that reach out to us and they want to get involved in conservation or make a career out of it. And I always tell people it's never too late to go to school. You know, you can be in your 80s or 90s and you want to learn, go to school. You know, it, it doesn't matter. But you studied psychology and politics, but then switched, became a zookeeper. And, and, and then, you know, we're going to talk to you about studying at the University of Oxford. But what really clicked with you to, to go, okay, you know what? I studied this, great, but I really am passionate about this. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things, I think when I was in high school, I went through that phase that a lot of teenagers go through, especially teenage girls, where I thought I was bad at maths. Probably, probably, I'm still not that great at maths, but, um, and so I thought I couldn't be a scientist. I, I had wanted to be a scientist when I was young. I'd wanted to be a marine biologist. And then I decided, oh, I can't do that. I'm not smart enough or, or whatever, but, I, but I, I could write and, um, I had got good enough grades to go to university. So I thought I'd have to do an arts degree. Um, so, you know, humanities. So I chose those subjects, but one of the sort of electives in my psychology degree was animal behavior. And the lecturer taught us all about animals. And I thought, you know what, this is way more interesting than the humans. <laughs> and so that led me down the path of, of becoming a scientist, you know. And, and I also, in that process, I, I really learned that I loved the way science worked and the way science thought about the world and analyze the world. It just seemed to me such a powerful way of thinking about the world and, and understanding it that I, I really wanted to do more of it. Yeah, no. And, and, and that's a good, it's a good reminder that, I mean, I, I was not great at math side or, or math. I, you know, I never took calculus, but then I had to take a lot of statistics, you know, to be a scientist and, and that's, you know, you, I, I had to really apply myself with that. So you know, for all the listeners out there, if, if you're not that great at math, don't be afraid to jump into science. It's, it's a lot more than that. But now it, you finished your undergrad and then you went all the way to the UK. The, you got a PhD in zoology at Oxford. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I, I applied for scholarships to go to different places. And the, the first one I applied for, I got to go to Oxford. So that was pretty darn lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, yeah, yeah. So that that wasn't what I expected. I sort of just applying as a bit of a practice run, but um, yeah, I'm I lucked out on that one. And um, so at Oxford, I wanted to do animal behaviour because that was my specialty. But it, at Oxford, animal behaviour sat in zoology rather than in psychology. So unless I wanted to do, um, you know chickens or rats, I had to go to zoology to do any other species. So, so I ended up a zoologist, just kind of by accident. Nobody seemed to mind. I hadn't studied it before. So <laughs> I had to learn on the run. Yeah. And then your dissertation, you're up in Scotland. What were you studying up there? 
Yeah, well, you know, not content with traveling to the other side of the planet to do my PhD, I then wanted to get as far away from civilization as possible. Um, and the furthest that my supervisor would let me go was um, in Scotland. So I went to the Outer Hebrides. Um, and the reason I went there was because I was interested in, obviously, I worked in a conservation group. So I worked in the um, Wildlife Conservation Research Unit um, at Oxford. And I was interested in the impact of uh, feral predators on native species because I thought that would be a really important area to have expertise in coming back to Australia. We have such a lot of problems. You know, it's one of the big conservation problems we have is the impact of foxes and, and things like that on um, and cats on, on native mammals. So um, the Outer Hebrides was a great place to do that because it's an island chain in the North City and it has a population of American mink that were released from surf farms in the 1970s. Um, and the mink have spread through the Northern Islands, but at the time they hadn't managed to spread into the Southern Islands. And they have a big impact on seabirds um, and a lot of native species. So um, my project was to compare the impact on the two areas, the areas that had mink and the areas that didn't. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> I'm going to read that dissertation after reading your book because it's such <laughs> amazing science and, and and we do we when we do go to australia and talk about the species there invasive species is definitely one of the hot topics you know rabbits and uh, you know the the toads up in up in the north and you know you're right here like here in new zealand uh, stoats weasels have just decimated mm. the bird population so uh fascinating stuff i have to bring you back on to talk about that one because that that sounds like great research now in Australia and, and around the world, you're an award-winning author. What else are you doing? So you're, you're a professor, you said creative writing at Flinders, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've worked at, I've, I've worked as a um, creative writer. I, ha I have taught creative writing for quite a long time. I, I've taught um, academic writing in particular. So that's one of my specialties is teaching scientists and academics to write academic papers. So helping PhD students write their papers, that kind of stuff. Um, so I do a lot of that, but I can, I also teach creative writing and, and fiction writing and those sorts of things. And, and especially creative nonfiction, which is what I do. Um, I don't write, I do still write scientific papers every now and again, but I try not to. I mostly, um, mostly write books and that's a very different form of writing. So the books I write are not information books. Usually they're not um, guide books. I, got a couple that are, but mostly they're, they're not, mostly they're narrative nonfiction. So they're telling a story and they're nearly always telling a story of what I find out about something as I go along. So it's, it tends to be a personal story. I, I want to take the readers on a journey with me to find out what, what I can discover about the animal. So even though I write them as something of, a, something of an expert in terms of being, in this case of being a zoologist, I'm not a expert in the topic in the way a scientist would be if they were working as a koala scientist. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot in the process. Um, but it, that's just, you know, I'm, I'm a couple of steps ahead, I guess, of most readers. Yeah. Like I opened with, like, this was a, a this was an excellent, excellent read. It was, it, it was a narrative. I, I did go on your journey with you as you traveled around Australia and I was looking up the map, like, where's she now? And Okay, there's koalas there. Okay, I got to add that to my travel list. And, you know, then you were in the great north part of Queensland. And I remember texting my partner at Pippa. And I'm like, okay, we're going here, babe. Next time we go to Queensland, we're going here. And uh, it, it's, it's an amazing story. 
heartbreaking too, you know, the koalas and all the, the pressures. And I think we can jump into that now a little bit, uh, but why koalas? Why of, of all the animals you could have written about? And obviously, you know, it's very iconic to Australia, but why did you pick koalas? Yeah, I think koalas are really interesting because they have attracted such a huge international following. You know, they're the poster child for conservation, really, um, internationally. You know, they attract more money than than pretty much any other species, I'm told. Um, and that was really apparent during the Black Summer bushfires um, on the east coast of Australia in 2019 and 20, when there was just a massive outpouring of of grief and anxiety and distress about the state of the koalas in particular. And as you know, I've, I've written quite a lot on bushfires before, and that's the first one I'm, I have noticed in the history of bushfires in Australia that there has been that predominant concern for animals and wildlife. Um, usually when we have bushfires, people are predominantly concerned about the human impact. But in those fires, Wildlife and the environment was way up there on the radar. It was really what people were concerned about in Australia and also overseas. So that really, it did make me think, I mean, it made me think about lots of things, but the koalas, I, I was really curious about that. And, and also the fact that people were talking a lot about koalas going extinct on the East Coast or, you know, going into rapid decline. And that's a really unusual thing for me because I mostly in my adult life lived in the in Victoria and South Australia, and in those states, koalas are booming. There's so many that we have an overpopulation problem. So I really wanted to understand what on earth was going on in, in the northern states or northeastern states of New South Wales and Queensland compared to what was happening in the southern states and, and try and understand how it is that koalas can be simultaneously going extinct and also overpopulating. I... I'm going to jump to that question now because that, that was one of my major points reading this. I found uh, fascinating. I do want to jump back to the evolution because it's something that I, I really dork out in our podcast when we cover species. I just find it so fascinating. And your description of the evolution of koalas and the big koalas, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But to jump to that point, I found, and, and we did, we covered koalas a couple of years ago. And we did talk about the bushfires and the impacts on the wildlife and over a billion dead animals. It, it brought me to tears, like literally to tears, uh, seeing those videos of the koalas burnt, thinking of the wombats. But I think some of those animals that were underground did okay, but a koala, you know, or even the, the a lot of the kangaroos that couldn't escape it. It was just so heart-wrenching. What is the pressures in the north that they're seeing in Queensland and, and New South Wales? I driving around, I saw the koala signs, but didn't see any koalas. Obviously, it, it's a really interesting question, and there's a lot of different theories about it. And it, the the issue is, you know, that like most animals, there's a lot of different factors impacting on koala populations. So you know, people will say, well, it's the bushfires, or it's the um, disease issue, or it's the climate. Um, all these different things, I guess. The issue is that South Australia, South Australia in particular, and, and really Victoria too, doesn't have any better habitat than the the, the northeastern states. Um, Victoria has lost a lot of its forest. It still does have some forested areas, but it, it, it's very heavily impacted, um, has lost a lot of its native vegetation. South Australia's never not had much forest in recent times because it's just dried out. 
Um, so it did have koalas in the past, but that didn't have them, probably didn't have them recently. So they'd probably gone extinct. So we don't have dinner difference in habitat that you can really pin it to. Both areas suffer from catastrophic bushfires. You know, there's no, no real difference. I think on the East Coast, they don't notice the fires that we have in Victoria and South Australia, but believe me, they are just as bad, if not worse. Victoria is terrible for bushfires. It's, mm-hmm. it's really quite a bad climate. So it's not those things. The disease issue is interesting. Um, the disease, I think, is it's an interesting one. It's often a symptom of a problem more than a cause of a problem. Uh, why are, we do have those diseases in some of the southern populations, but they seem to be, the animals seem to be more resistant to them, to their impacts. They don't get the same symptoms. They don't get as sick. I think the koala retrovirus is certainly, so the koala suffers from uh, chlamydia, mm-hmm. a sexually transmitted disease. They probably always have um, of some kind. The evidence is a bit, shifts around a bit with that, but they, there's certainly some new retroviruses moving through the koala population from the north, and those are having a big impact. So retroviruses cause an AIDS-like disease, which of course makes other diseases worse. So those things are a factor. But really, what I think it comes down to is habitat destruction and ongoing habitat destruction. The thing that's happening in Queensland and New South Wales are epicenters for land clearance. They still have, they were meant to not have any more land clearance. They were meant to be protecting remaining native vegetation. But there are so many loopholes and so many um, ways around the legislation, so many exemptions that the level of land clearance is huge in Queensland and in New South Wales. Um, and I think that's really having a big impact. They still have logging of native forests, and that's something that we don't have in South Australia because our forests aren't really commercial. But um, And I think it's still a problem in Victoria, but less so. But we do have a lot of native logging going on in those northern states, and I think that's what's causing the biggest problem. But I think it's also interesting that in both places we've got fragmented populations. So we've got forests that are fragmented into basically into islands. So koalas can't really move safely between different areas anymore. And I think when you've got a population under stress with a heavy disease burden, that could cause a population to go into decline. Whereas in another area where you've perhaps got more nutritious trees, a little bit higher rainfall, less disease burden, you could potentially, the same thing could actually create an overpopulation. But it's the same factor, they can't move. So the fact that they can't move between populations spread out, dispersed, means that the disease burden exacerbates in the, in the, the islands in the north. And whilst in the south, they just overbreed. There's too many of them and they've got nowhere to go. So I think we're seeing different symptoms from the same cause. So that's yeah. my theory anyway. No, I picked that up from the book. Yeah, no, definitely. Like you were talking about, like they're, they're in your backyard, they're everywhere. And yet in parts of mm. the country in Queensland and New South Wales where they're supposed to be, there isn't that many koalas there. So one of the things, you know, we see it in Brazil, uh, back in my home country, the United States, and not to get political, but changes in administrations. So Scott Morrison was the, the PM. He's no longer there. 
Is there some hope that some of these laws are going to get changed to help benefit wildlife? Is is the public pressure there in Australia to to support koala mm-hmm. conservation and and to stop this destruction? Because I even hear it from farmers in Queensland; they're afraid of 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 all the runoff and all the clearing, and you know it's going to impact them. And they're more conservative, right? So I don't know. What's the general feeling there in Australia? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think. I think there is generally, um, well, certainly in the last election, there was a strong push towards a, you know, a, a greenish agenda. Um, there was definitely, um, the, the votes did go in that direction. So, you know, we saw a lot of the climate change candidates and also um, a lot of green candidates. So there was a general push in that direction. I think it's pretty clear that people do want a, a cleaner environment. And I, and I that has been happening for a while, but I think that one of the problems we have is in the way public decision-making gets corrupted. Um, and, and I think that really the power of lobby groups and the way they donate money to political parties is hugely problematic for modern democracy. Um, and until we bring that under control, we will always find that the wealthy um, and rich business interests will prevail, and that's clearly blocking progress on climate change, which everybody agrees is an important and essential thing. Um, but I think that there's been recent movements um, since the 80s, really, that um, organisations have found ways of influencing um, public opinion and particularly political opinions in their favour in a, in a significantly undemocratic way, I think. So undermining... Um, democratic processes, I think is a really big threat. Uh, so that's, that would be my political argument. And I think that really applies in us in Australia. We have, um, quite a few, even, even governments that are in favor of environmental laws are still beholden to some extremely wealthy individuals who may, who control most of the, most of the money. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a problem for all countries, um, and, and, and you know, it's certainly a problem in Australia. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the will. <laughs> yeah, throughout the world, <laughs> the yes. Will is born. Yeah. yeah, but we really need to find a way of strengthening our democracies so that they actually work and represent what people want, what everybody wants, and what's in everybody's best interest, not what's in the interests of a few. Yeah, no, I, I that, that beautifully put. And, and I do feel there's a shift since, you know, the last four, five, six years, there's been a big shift of, more green, a green push, even though it's been building up, like I said, for, for the last few decades, I really feel like in the spotlight, climate change is there. We agree it's happening. Now, what are we going to do about it? So at least the deniers have been shouted down. So anyways, if you get off that soapbox and get back to the koalas, but it, it is, it does impact them. And, and, you know, we love our, our Australian animals. I mean, the, they're very popular at the podcast. Our, all of our fans love learning about all the different creatures there. They're so unique. So whatever you can do to preserve them, please keep doing what you're doing. Now, to, to jump back to koalas, and I, I want to go back to their, their, their natural history. Is there anything you learned that really surprised you? Uh, when you were researching that about their evolutionary history and and where they where they are today, yeah, uh, so much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really did learn an awful lot about koalas in the process yeah. of the this book. Um, 
yeah, I guess the thing with, you know, you know, when I first started writing this book, you know, I, I thought it would be a relatively quick book. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't too complicated. It's, you know, you just get into the scientific literature, you just pull it all together. It's, that's fine. Of course, koalas are one of the best studied marsupials, um, you know, or best studied animal in Australia, really. Uh, so there's loads and loads of detail, but only about specific things. So we know an awful lot about diseases in koalas. Um, but not so much on the behavioural side of things, you know. So, so it's a bit hit and miss. What, what, you know, it's not always the things you want to know. Um, so, yeah, but the gut biome, I think, was definitely the thing that really blew my mind, and it certainly took me a lot of work to get my head around it. Um, that's understanding, you know, toxicology and chemistry of plants and. Molecular chemistry is way out of my field of expertise. Um, so I, th- I think actually that really helps the process of the book, though, in that in order for me to understand it, I really had to break it down and, and get it really, really clear in my head. And that then I hope makes it clear for everyone else. So they shouldn't be put off by that. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think I do make it fairly uh, accessible. Um, because I had to, because um, it just blew my mind otherwise. So, you know, the complexity of how animals break down protein, you know, trying to extract nutritious proteins in leaves and then the trees are producing sacrificial proteins to block them and mm. it, it's unbelievable. Okay. So it's just amazing. I guess it all comes down to that sort of evolutionary process where, you know, the evolution between the trees and the koalas and how they evolve together Uh, is just amazing, I think. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Oh, it was. And, and, I, and I will tell the listeners, yes, it, again, that narrative nonfiction writing, this is, uh, this is pr- probably one of the best books I've ever read that is written in a, a way to learn. And, 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 and I'm just being flat out honest with my Aussie listeners and, and everybody around the world. This is a very easy read. It, it, it makes it very understandable. I always talk with, with Angie, my podcast partner, science communication is a difficult. It's difficult for us as scientists to, to break things down so people that aren't in our fields can understand it. It's an art. And this book is so well written. So you do explain the diets very, very well. I guess just to kind of back up a little bit, though, because you did say this this complex chemistry because the, and, and we did cover it when we covered koalas, but briefly. So the eucalyptus leaves are toxic, right? But they yeah, can eat them yeah. and they get nutrition out of them. Yeah, but only just. Yes, barely. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's the interesting thing. I mean, there's two things about eucalyptus leaves. They're, they're, um, they are very toxic. So they, they have compounds in them that generally make mammals feel sick. So, you know, if I guess if we ate them, um, we would feel nauseous. Certainly, most marsupials do. Um, and the other thing is that the leaves are very tough, so they're very hard leaves. They're, they're not only got lots of cellulose, you know, which is what makes plant material, you know, solid, stand up, 
Um, but they've also got a lot of lignin in them. So that's the thing that makes wood. So, so they're really tough leaves um, and they, they're hard to break down. Um, they're resistant to drought. So, so that they're all drought adaptations. So the koalas have got a tough job getting rid of them. It's not any tougher really than most herbivores. You know, it's the nutritious, the nutritional qualities of um, eucalypt leaves are not much different from grass, which is also very tough. Mm. Um, and hard to bring as well. Silicates and nasty sharp things that are really upsetting for mammals. So plants work quite hard to try and stop other things eating them. <laughs> so it's a it's a wall going on out there. Um, but the toxins are a, a next level really for eucalypts, and that's been fairly successful for them in stopping at least mammals from eating them. But the koalas have managed to. to not only develop a stomach that can digest the the plant matter, and like most herbivores, that requires microbial assistance. Yes. So they have to have a, a microbial soup full of different bacteria and, and other things um, that helps them break down the cellulose because mammals can't do that themselves. Something else has to break that down. And that's why we know that you know other herbivores like horses and cows have these incredibly complicated stomachs. Uh, which koalas don't have that complicated a stomach, but they've got a thing called a cecum, which is like our, it's it's the same thing as our appendix. But whereas our appendix is the size of our thumb, quite small and residual, the koala cecum is the full deal and it's about two meters long. So it's like a big elongated balloon, if you like, that's full of this microbial soup. And the koalas chewed up leaves go in there, they get washed into there, the big bits get swept out and the, the little bits go into the city and they spend a few days in there being digested by all the bacteria. But that doesn't deal with the toxins. That's only to digest the cellulose. So the toxins have to be dealt with by the liver. So koalas have a supercharged liver and they have a double dose of toxin-removing genes um, to processing the eucalyptus toxin. And they're so effective at doing this that they're also really effective at removing medicine from their system. So a really good example of how good they are at getting rid of toxins is that if you give a human a dose of treatments for chlamydia, they would be taking medication for three days Mm -hmm. to clear it up. The same medication would take 30 days Mm -hmm. in a koala because its liver is so busy taking out that nasty medicine out of its system. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the secret of their success, um, as it were. But then, like you said, just they they get enough nutrition just so how how does that translate into their behavior because it's it's like the panda, you know, I always go back to them that you know this they have this carnivore stomach and they eat bamboo and they don't get much nutrition out of it well the then this draws to an interesting question because people have often said, uh, the reason koalas sleep a lot because mm-hmm. that is what they do all day mm-hmm. they they sleep for up to ninety percent of the time, so you know they're not doing a lot. Um, people say, well, that's because their diet's so poor. Um, their diet's so poor, so they have to sleep a lot because they haven't got any energy. It's just not really how um, energetic balances work. You mm-hmm. know, if, if you're not getting enough energy, you have to be awake longer in order to get more food. Yep. Uh, so, <laughs> and koalas are not. I think the thing is, yeah, and also, you know, we don't, we don't, um, yeah, if you think about your cat or your dog, they, they laze around and do nothing most of the time because they're through high energy, so they don't need to be hunting all the time. So that's the kind of animal that usually sleeps a lot. So koalas are unusual in that they do sleep a lot. So we need to think about why that is. 
they're actually getting much the same amount of nutritional quality out of their food as the grazing sheep Mm. and goats are at the same body size. They, They take in the same volume. They do have to be very picky about what that food is. So whereas a lot of grazing animals might be non-selective and just eat most things, koalas are unbelievably picky about what they eat. So they will only eat certain species of eucalypts. Of the 900 species of eucalypts, they're only known to eat about 70. And of those 70, any individual koala will specialize in three, four, up to 10 sometimes. Um, and of those species, they'll only eat some individual from some individual trees. So they don't like trees that grow in dry areas. They like trees that grow in wet areas. They might not like this side of the tree, but they'll like the other side of the tree. They'll like this tree one week, not the next. Um, <laughs> they'll mm-hmm. like the new growth sometimes or the old growth other times. So they're incredibly particular. And what we think they're doing is they're selecting on the basis of the nutritional balance, how much it's going to how much energy they can get out of each leaf um, and and how that's going to impact on them because there are some leaves that they can eat and they actually lose energy by eating them because mm-hmm. it takes more effort to digest that leaf than the energy they get out of it. So mm-hmm. you, you can end up with a koala losing weight from eating the wrong food. So that's why they're so particular. No, yeah, it was, it's, it was again, fascinating when you got into that and talking about the different physiology and. And, and everything with koalas and, and there's a lot more in the book than just that. But I found that quite uh, very interesting. Switching gears a little bit, what specifically is the ecological niche of koalas in Australia? Is it, you know, feeding or, or feeding on eucalyptus or where, where do they fit in? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're, they're the arboreal. Polyvores, you know, they're the, they're the leaf-eating, tree-dwelling mammals, really. I mean, there are others. Of course, we've got, you know, we've got a whole suite of possums and gliders um, that are also tree-dwelling, uh, and they also eat leaves. So a lot of the, you know, there's a few possums that are quite close to the koala in terms of the amount of eucalyptus leaves they eat. Their ringtails, I think, are actually even better at processing eucalyptus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not exclusive. But. You know, they occupy a particular, um, I think, I'm not sure if anybody's really looked at this, but they do, op- op- they're a big mammal for that niche. The, most of the others are quite a lot smaller. Um, there's a lot fewer of them, so they are more particular. I think the others, the possums and gliders, manage by having other things in their diet. So they'll eat leaves, flowers, nuts insects, other other things to supplement their diet. And that means they can be more often koalas them the most exclusively on, on eucalypts. So they can't be and because they're big, I think there can't be too many of them. Mm-hmm. So um as a result there's there's they're a lot lower density than the other species, I suspect. Yeah. Um so yeah, they the so they're they're sort of the parallel of the sloths, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, if you want to, if you want to parallel, and that's what they used to be described as when when Europeans finally were, noticed them in the trees, they they called them either monkeys or sloths. I, I like your description. They're not very much like monkeys. No, 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 not at all. I like your description of when they took koalas back and how difficult it was, 
you know, obviously because they are such specialists and in, in special trees and types of eucalyptus and and then the the difficulty in them in zoos overseas, because like at San Diego Zoo, I've I've seen them. That's my old hometown. I actually got to interview the uh, the keepers. It's one of the one of our early podcast episodes. Uh, the San Diego Zoo uh, zookeepers there, and uh, how difficult it can be to to maintain them because they are so specific. Mm. Feel you know, I was just there in in the Corumbin Wildlife Sanctuary. I didn't get to Lone Pine. I, I did want to get there, but uh, yeah, it was great to see the work that they're doing there for conservation. Because one of the books you wrote, and I think this is the next one of yours I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, is A Future in Flames. And you did bring up the, the, the wildfires in 2019, 2020. So I think our listeners would be very interested to, to get your perspective on, uh, you know, what happened with the, I guess we'll focus on the koalas because it's such a, that's such a big topic. But what made you write that book? What was it about? And I guess how did those wildfires really impact koalas throughout the country? Yeah, so A Future of Flames was written after the, or it's actually written during the Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria, which were, which are one of the, the worst, well, they are the worst um, bushfire in Australian history in terms of human death. Mm-hmm. So human fatalities, um, they were, they were absolutely terrible. And I was writing that book when the Black Saturday fires hit. Um, and, and they burnt quite close to me. We were probably within about five minutes of being um, burnt by those fires when the wind changed. So it was really very close. I was, you know, I live in a fire-prone area. I, I did, was living in a fire-prone area then. We had always taken fire very seriously. We had an, you know, we prepared the property. We had an active bushfire plan. In Australia, a lot of residents, um, we have a very community-led response to bushfires. So our firefighters are volunteers. They're members of the community who volunteer their time to follow bushfire brigades and go out and fight wildfires. Um, we have paid firefighters as well, but they mostly for house fires in the cities. So it's always been a community-led response. And residents historically have been responsible for looking after themselves in the country. So that was, you know, that was our position. Um, and my husband was a, was a captain of the local volunteer fire brigade uh, during those fires. So that had a really big impact. When those fires hit, that had a really big impact on how I was writing that book. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I realized that um, rather than being an ecological story, which is what I had planned to write, it became a story about how we can live safely in a bushfire zone which much of Australia is. Mm-hmm. Australia burns constantly. There's always fires burning in Australia. So it is a very fire-prone climate. Um, and that's what I wanted to write it for. I guess I wanted to write it so that I knew that I was doing the best I could to live safely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for this book, so that was before the Black Summer Fires. I guess the, the thing that, particularly happened with this book when I was writing about koalas is that I, I still live in a fire prone area, not quite as risky as it was when I lived in Victoria. Um, but we had a fire burn right up to the, it actually burnt down the side of our property and burnt, it destroyed a couple of my neighbor's homes. Mm. Um, so it was quite a significant, it was a small fire, but doesn't matter how big a fire it is. If it's impacting you, it's significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I watched, you know, I was standing on my property preparing to defend it from the fires and watching the waves of wildlife coming out of the conservation park that 
was burning behind in my home. And we saw the, you know, the big waves of cock- the black cockatoos flying overhead and, and the big, they, they were just, they, it's interesting, cockatoos are very characterful animals and they often swoop and swerve mm-hmm. and make mm-hmm. lots of noise. And these guys were just absolutely silent, absolutely straight and flat and just flying flat out out of there. Um, it was just really evocative. And then we got the waves of little birds coming out of the forest you know, all tweeting their alarm calls and panicking, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the kangaroos came out, you know, pounding across the paddock, mm-hmm. just all heading in one direction. It was it was a really powerful experience. And, of course, I wondered where the koalas were because mm-hmm. I knew there were lots of koalas in there and I didn't see none came through our place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, that's because that fire's going too fast. They're not, they're not going to get out. Uh, and a, and a lot of that. So so I think you know that that was where that all came from. I think I have chills down my spine. I'm not going to lie. Like that that description, very vivid. That's your writing too. Your writing style. It's it's a great storyteller. It's powerful. Like because all those images, like you said, the koalas didn't get out. And I, I go back to you know this those people rescuing burnt koalas. I remember the the one that really got me and, and, and still, if I really think about it, will put me in tears is that one woman, I don't know if it was in the blue mountains, but she was collecting koalas and sticking them all in her car. And she mm-hmm. had about six, seven burnt koalas in her car that she was rescuing. And, oh, just my heart goes out to him. So what, what's the, the, the fallout here? We are a couple of years later you know, almost three years later now, right? Yeah, 2020. Gosh, time flies. What's happened since then for koalas? Has, has there been a shift in, because it, 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 wildfires are tough. You're, you're right. Like it, it is part of the natural ecosystem, but I think humans have some impact as far as the way we manage our lands, right? I know in, where I'm from, California, yeah. you know, that's it, it, a whole different discussion for another day, but, you know, not not allowing fires to burn, blah, 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 makes worse fires. What's the fallout for the koala, I guess, after this, you know, years later? What, what are, are they looking yeah. to improve? Like Kangaroo Island, you talk about in your book, are they doing better there mm-hmm. now after being impacted so badly? Look, I think that, that, I mean, I guess there's a couple of things there. Firstly, um, you know, obviously fires are always going to burn in Australia and we do, you know, we, we do do a reasonably good job of, of um, description you know, prescribed burning and reducing mm-hmm. fuel loads, we could probably do better. We need, you know, we need to spend more time on the on the land doing that on a small scale. You can do it in an ecological way. It's it's tricky, but you can do it. Um, I guess the problem we're facing at the moment, um, it, it, there's two things. Koalas are always going to be vulnerable bushfires, but they usually their populations. It's bad for individuals, but their populations can recover. So we will still have the animals dying, but the populations of koalas can recover by coming in from elsewhere or from retreating into gullies. They often, you know, go into wet gullies, seek shelter there, and so individuals will survive there and move back into the forest. What we're seeing at the moment is increasing fires and increasing severity of fires. So in Black Summer, we had fires burning in places that have never burned before. And when I say never, we're talking about millennia. Right. You know, we're talking about these are places that have, have not burned in thousands of years. So they're, they're burning habitats that are 
cannot tolerate being burnt, have no recovery mechanism from burning, so they're gone. Rainforest areas, mm-hmm. pockets mm-hmm. of rainforest. And that's being caused by climate change. Mm-hmm. So that increased um, severity and frequency. And, of course, they're burning in an environment where we've reduced the amount of forest already. So the koalas, when we lose these areas, so the reserve behind my house was almost completely burnt and destroyed. So there's no other area of forest for the koalas to go or to come from. Um, the, you know, Fortunately, they, they're pretty resilient around here and they'll live in people's gardens, so they can move in from there. But you're losing these big patches of habitat. Kangaroo Island, almost all, I'm pretty sure even all the state park burnt, all that park was destroyed. So those koalas are now dependent on forestry plantations, the ones that survived. And that causes its own problems. Mm-hmm. So I think it, you know, we've got the habitat destruction and the climate change, and that's the thing that's causing fires to become a, a, an existential threat for that species. Yeah, no, and for us, it is, it is, it is. We're we're definitely in a new world, and you know, like here in twenty twenty three, the the weather here in New Zealand has just been horrific this summer. You know, flooding and cyclones and stuff that we've never really experienced before. So we all have to get used to all these changes. I, I guess I kind of want to tie this up a little bit. I God, you wrote another book that I want to talk about. I'm not going to have time to get it, but Australian prehistoric megafauna. I I, I will have to. Uh, that's more of a children's book, right? Like I I've got to get that one too. It's on my list. I I love talking about megafauna, the prehistory, some of these species that walked this planet before us, or even beside by side us. It fascinates me, but. Not going to have time to get that on this one. Where What does the koala's future look like? We hear, and I know you bring it up early in your book, people calling them functionally extinct or, I, you know, they are heavily fragmented, but I still had a, a feeling of hope reading your book. Mm. It wasn't all gloom and doom. Yeah, I actually think that if we look objectively at the koala's conservation history, it's actually a very positive story. They've come back from near extinction before. Um, the Victorian and South Australian populations were virtually wiped out and now they're the most abundant population of koalas. So we've got a really successful translocation history with koalas, protecting them, using reserves. Koalas have a natural boom and bust tendency, so they come back fairly well. I think that the history tells us they are a robust and resilient species. Now, they are certainly... Individual populations on the East Coast are absolutely under threat of extinction, but the species is not, um, but populations are. And that's a worry. I think the worry is really that if koalas that are so robust and so resilient and so adaptable behaviorally to different areas, if they're under threat and declining, we're seriously doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And so there are warning species for us. They're telling us, we're really, really messing things up and we have to put much more effort into doing better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's again, koala, uh, un, a natural history and an uncertain future. It, 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 if you love koalas, you want this book on your bookshelf, you want to read it. Uh, my friend down there, Chantel, get this book. She always asks me for book recommendations. Uh, this one for sure. Uh, is there anything you're working on now that you want to talk about? I don't know if you, you can, but any future books that you're looking to write that we can keep our eyes to? 
Yeah, look, I'm, I'm still thinking about that. I, I'm wondering whether it's time to go back to talking about fires. I, I don't know. Fires are really difficult to talk about. People often just don't want to know. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I keep coming back to them because they're important. Um, and, and I think, you know, that you need to talk about them. You need to think about them, even if not many people buy the books. Um, so yeah, I'm still, I'm still, I'm, I'm in between books at the moment. I think I'll just, um, see where we'll see what comes up, but in, well, environmental crisis is certainly on my mind, I guess, with all the floods and, and earthquakes and all that sort of stuff. Well, I mean, how many, I, I should ask you in the beginning, how many total books have you written so far? I, I think it's, it's the time. Um, I think it's like 13th. 13th, Sorry. yeah. So there's, it's a lot to, yeah, I'm definitely going to go through your library and, and uh, pick some more because I really enjoyed it. I really did. I mean, I, I've interviewed authors before. I've read their books. I find them very fascinating and interesting. But this was one that it just, it captured me. And I, I like I said, it, it really wanted me to go back to Australia, spend a lot more time there. Uh, so when I can, I'm going to fly back over the Tasman Sea and, and explore more of your beautiful country. Uh, any social media or websites you want to let the listeners know where they can learn more about you, your books, or any of your, you know, your writings, things like that? Yeah, yeah, sure. sure. So I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. People are welcome to follow me on those. Um, I do have a website, which is daniellclode.com.au. So just all one word for my name. Um, that's probably the easiest place to to find information. I should say that if people are looking for the koala book in Australia or New Zealand, it's sold as Koala, A Life in Trees. So that's the Australian-New Zealand version of the book. Um, elsewhere, it's it's the, a natural history and uncertain future. Oh, good. I got the American version. I, I told her I lived in New Zealand. You're a publicist, but uh, <laughs> it's... It, it is. It is It is a wonderful book. I I've seriously highly recommend it. It's it's a wonderfully told story. Uh, I feel like I was there with you. you. I remember the fires. You were talking about the fires coming up to your house. I remember that part. It, it's just a wonderful book. So thank you for for writing it. Thank you for telling their story. I think a lot of times as educators or as authors and stuff, you you know, you, you work so hard on something. I know this obviously had a lot of love and a lot of hard work in, put into it, uh, but thank you for telling their story. You know, the koalas, thank you. I thank you. I thank you for coming on the podcast and just, uh, you know, spending less than an hour with us, but, but capturing my attention and, and just a uh, wonderful storytelling, Danielle. So, so thank you so much for coming on and, and please keep writing. Please keep telling these stories. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 